Well, uh, as you know, I've been living in the great city of Wagga Wagga for now 20 years, but uh, I grew up here in Chatswood. And it certainly has changed since. When I caught a train to Chatswood Station a couple of years ago, well, I nearly missed the spot because Ch Chatswood Transport Interchange doesn't look anything like Chatswood Station. It used to look like I nearly, nearly didn't get off the train. <laughs> yeah, and the place is really unrecognisable to the place I grew up. But uh, there was one place when I was living in Sydney, it wasn't in Chatswood, but in Sydney, that, that, that hasn't changed much. And I, I remember way back when I was in Sydney, this particular place that would always draw me back. A particular time when I would thank God for where I lived. A particular scene that made me think, if I ever get sick of living in Sydney, I need to come here at this time and take it all in again. The place I'm referring to is the Opera House forecourt. The time, early evening, as the sun goes down and the city lights begin to glisten on the water in Circular Quay. As a subscriber back then to the Sydney Theatre Company, I would find myself there often. It's a magical scene, it's a magical place, surrounded by those two great icons of Sydney, the Harbour Bridge and the Opera House. And what a building the Opera House is. What a masterful work of architecture to grab hold of that great setting. What a grand plan. Instead of six years it was meant to take, it took 16 years to build. And it cost $102 million, 14 and a half times the original estimate. American travel writer Bill Bryson quotes John Gunter. The plan was bold, unique, brilliantly chosen and trouble from its inception. The problem, adds Bryson, was the famous roof. Nothing so daringly inclined and top-heavy had ever been built before and no one was sure it could be. The famous sales of the Opera House are at the heart of its grandeur. Yet when in the 1950s the conductor Eugene Goossens began lobbying for a concert venue on the site of the old tram station at Bennelong Point, he had something much more modernist and mundane in mind. It was when Jörn Utzen won a worldwide design competition that it began to take its shape. It was Utzen's grand plan to make the most of its harbourside site and at the heart of his plan were the sails. He had to work hard at the design. In his original model, they were more parabolic, but it couldn't be done. And after three years of struggle, Utzon found the answer in an orange. By cutting spherical triangles from the skin, he discovered a regular basis for the irregular forms that he wanted to create. He drew drawings and eventually made the model. The engineers were then able to design a structure in which a framework of prefabricated tapering ribs of identical curvature could support a thin skin. Utzon's vision could now be realised. The result was the building that identifies Sydney. As Bill Bryson puts it, it's the opera house that gets all the attention and you can understand why. It's so startlingly familiar, say, so, hey, I'm in Sydney, that you can't stop looking at it. Today, as, as we look at Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus together, we discover that God has a grand plan. And the church in Ephesus was part of that plan. And this church in Chatswood is part of that plan. God's grand plan. Indeed, like the sales of the opera house, church is at the heart of God's grand plan. Oftentimes, what happens in church doesn't seem that significant. Sometimes it's chaotic. Sometimes we struggle. 
Oftentimes it seems fairly mundane. But when we look at what Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus and realise it's as much about us as it was about them, we can see how amazing it is. God has a grand plan to bring all things under his son Jesus Christ and at the heart of his grand plan is the church. A motley crew of sinners who are saved by grace. A bunch of ordinary people that he has chosen from before time. Us. In the light of God's grand plan, Utzon's plans fail into insignificance. And just as his sails set its grandeur, so we, the church of Jesus Christ, set his grandeur before the world. Let's consider it together in this marvellous, powerful letter, the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. But first, let's ask God to help us. Let's pray. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that, that Paul wrote this letter so many years ago. We thank you, Lord, that you inspired him to write it. We thank you that it has been preserved for us through the centuries. And we thank you that we can now read it knowing that it's not just the words of Paul, but it is the word of God. And we pray, Lord God, as we, as we ponder together uh, your plan for, for, for this world and your plan for us as your people, uh, that you would make it clear to us and that you would change us so that we would be the people that you've made us to be. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We read the first and part of the fourth chapters of Ephesians this morning. And we begin to get a big picture that continues through the letter. And one thing that comes through fairly clearly is that God has a grand plan. From Paul's introduction of himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and the panoramic picture he paints of every spiritual blessing in Christ, right through to the call to arms at the end, dressed in God's spiritual armour to take a stand against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm, this letter shouts out that God has a grand plan. The spiritual reality of God's sovereign intentions for this world like the, the Utzon sketches that guided the building of the Opera House, so God's purposes for his creation are being brought to fruition. Paul summarises it very clearly in the first chapter. Look at it with me. Chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfilment. What was this mystery of his will? What was it that gives God pleasure? What was, has he purposed in Christ? What was to be put into effect when everything is fulfilled? What is God's grand plan, in other words? To bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Look at that purpose statement again. To bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. That's God's grand plan. His purpose, his will, his pleasure. What he is putting into effect to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. That's why the name of Christ is used 49 times throughout this letter. And the important expression in Christ or in him is used 23 times, 21 of those in the three introductory chapters. God's grand plan is all about Christ, about people being in Christ. And Paul captures it as he prays that the Ephesians may now may know sorry, the incomparably great power of God at work for believers. See down starting from the second half of verse 19 of chapter 1. 
That power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Head over everything. Far above all rule, authority, power and dominion. This is the plan. Jesus Christ over all, to bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head, even Christ. That everything comes under the headship of Jesus Christ. That at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, as we sang earlier. That everybody and everything acknowledge who Jesus is, bows before his throne, recognises him as the ruler of the universe. This was always God's plan, even before he spoke the words that brought creation into being, before Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the evening, before they lost paradise by turning away from God. Before Noah and Abraham and Jacob and Moses and David, from before the dawn of creation, God planned for a world that would honour his son. Paul was saying to to the church in Ephesus right from the start, as God is saying to us today, that he has made known the mystery of his will. It's no longer a secret, no longer a mystery, no longer inaccessible to us. God's grand plan is to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. We know that because of what we've already seen, what God has already revealed to us. Jesus, the Son of God, has come to us as one of us. He has died in our place on the cross. He has risen in power from the dead. His Father has already seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. The mystery of his God's will is revealed. Now, all of us make plans at times, don't we? We plan our work, we plan our investments, we plan our holidays, we plan our retirement. This year, I've had to be busy planning various monitorial duties alongside all the normal things. But do we consider what God's plan is? What the whole creation is about? Why God made this world and placed us in it? To bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head, even Christ. Now, if that's the case, shouldn't it affect our plans? Shouldn't it shape our lives, our priorities, how we spend our money, how we, what we do with our time? Some people pour amazing amounts of energy to fulfil the dream of home ownership. Some work for years for, for an overseas trip. Most of us sweat and toil to see our families prosper. But how much do we think of God's plan? What energy do we expend into seeing Christ honoured in our own lives? How much money do we invest on making him known to others? God has a plan to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. That's God's plan. Surely it must shape our plans. But the most amazing thing we find out from what Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus 
is the place that they, and in the same way you here in Chatswood, have in this grand plan of God. The church, you see, is the heart of his plan. In much the same way as those sails were at the heart of Utzon's plan, as the Opera House roof works to show the startling distinctiveness of its harbourside design, so God's in, God intends the church will work to bring all things under Christ. This is a major theme of Paul's letter to his friends in Ephesus. In chapter 1, he declares the church to be God's chosen people. He begins by praising God for all their spiritual blessings, which are all wrapped up in, in God's choice of them for his purpose. See verse 11. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. Chosen to bring glory to Christ. Chosen to hope in him. And then in the second part of the chapter, Paul prays for his church that they will know him better. And look again at how he finishes in verses 22 and 23. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Isn't that amazing? You know, just take it in. God has placed everything under Jesus, placed him head over all for the church. For the church in Ephesus, for the church in Chatswood, for you. For you are Christ's body. You are the fullness of him who fills everything in every way at the heart of his plans. Chapter 2 then paints a picture of the church as God's masterpiece. It begins by making it absolutely clear that we don't deserve to be his. The church is not made up of people who are good enough. It's made up of rebels. People like you and me who are dead in our sins. Until through Christ's death and resurrection, God gave us new life. It's by grace. So that people will see how great God is. Verse 6, And God raised us up with Christ. And seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. We are his workmanship, adds verse 10. As Henrietta Mears says, God is producing a masterpiece, his church. Through, this, through his undeserved kindness to us, the world will see who he is and will submit to the Lordship of Christ. The second part of chapter 2 draws a picture of this masterpiece, the church, as a reconciled people, Jew and Gentile now one, the wall that divided now destroyed. Gentiles, like the members of the church in Ephesus, welcomed in. The last paragraph of chapter 2 likens the church to a building. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Just as the temple of Artemis drew people to the city of Ephesus, just as the Sydney Opera House draws tourists to Sydney, so the church is being built to draw people to God. 
built on Christ as the foundation and rising to bring glory to Christ and all things under his headship. In chapter 3, the the focus shifts to what the church is about, a demonstration of God's wisdom and power. As it begins, Paul focuses on his role as a preacher of the gospel of grace to the Gentiles and he concludes in verses 10 and 11, placing the church fairly and squarely at the heart of God's plan. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities of the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is through the church that God will make the gospel known, not only amongst human beings, but in the heavenly realms, amongst the spiritual powers. It is through the church that he plans to bring all things under Christ. So he prays again for his friends in Ephesus that they would be overwhelmed by God's incredible love which he has included the, which has included them in his plans. And he finishes the chapter with a blessing and now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God works within us. He will be glorified in the church as in Christ Jesus. We are a demonstration of what he's about. As chapter 4 begins, Paul starts to apply the lesson, to outline what it means to be at the heart of God's grand plan, to urge them to live a life worthy of this amazing calling to be God's people. So we'll return to to look at the final three chapters in a moment. But before we do, notice what God's goal for the church is in chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. It's a picture of the church growing in Christ, isn't it? Growing under his headship. Here is the goal. All things under Christ. And here is the heart of it. The church under Christ. Do you get the picture? We're at the heart of God's grand plan. The church in Ephesus was. The church I pastors and Aden South Wagga is. And so is Chatswood Presbyterian Church. God is is working towards all things coming under Christ. The whole creation acknowledging his son. And he chooses to focus his plan on a bunch of sinners. To work through people like you and me who don't deserve it. His way of working is to pick us up, pick us out, sorry, before creation and call us together under Christ to draw attention to his glorious grace by demonstrating it in this motley crew. By getting us together under Christ and showing the spiritual powers in heaven what he can do, he will achieve his end of bringing all things under Christ. Wow. I don't know about you, but that just blows my mind. What do you think about when you drag yourself out of bed on a Sunday morning? 
Now, do, you, do you sometimes find it hard to motivate yourself to get here? Do, do you wonder why you bother? Do you uh, think sometimes you, you're wasting your time? And what about that small group you meet with through the week? Does that sometimes seem like a funny way to spend an evening? Do you ever ask, what's so special about this bunch of people? Why do I bother pouring energy into all this? According to people like Richard Dawkins, who's been, uh, you know, he's in, in, I think he's speaking in Melbourne this weekend. Well, according to him, we're stupid, you know, like moths flying suicidally into a light bulb. That's how he describes us. But God assures us today through Paul's message to the Ephesians, that we are at the heart of God's grand plan. God's way of getting the whole creation to bow the knee before Jesus is to pick us out, save us by grace, draw us together and build us into a temple that will show his grandeur. To make himself known in the heavenlies through his church. To, make, to, to show the amazing splendour of his character through those who gather here. To call all things under Christ's headship by growing it in you. There, there, there's nothing trivial and mundane about what God's doing here. The, the group of people you meet with each Sunday, the small group you invest more time in during the week, you're at the heart of God's grand plan. So what difference does it all make? Sydney's changed by those sails in Utzon's plan as the Opera House eclipsed the Harbour Bridge as an identifying icon. How has our life changed by being at the heart of God's grand plan? Well, that really is what the second half of Ephesians is all about. Paul begins in 4.1. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. I urge you to be the people God has called you to be, that is, to, to, to live out the plans God has for you. And then he proceeds to spell out what that means. First, it means unity and diversity, working together to grow in Christ, making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bonds of peace, while using the different grace that Christ has given to each of us to build up the body towards maturity. It's about humility and love towards one another a servant heart it's about mutual ministry each one playing his or her part all of you together united in a vision to be like Jesus encouraging and helping one another a partnership in the gospel that's Paul's vision of a church that is at the heart of God's grand plan a church that works together for Christ Secondly, it means shunning our old sinful ways, changing the way we live, taking off the old self, which died with Christ, and putting on the new self, transformed in him, getting rid of destructive, sinful behaviours, like lying and rage and malice and theft and obscenity and sexual immorality and greed, all things that will bring dishonour to the name of Christ rather than cause people to turn to him to take them off and to put on behaviours that will bring glory to the God who has saved us by his grace. Truthfulness, gentleness, honesty, wholesome talk, holiness, generosity. It's summarised well as chapter 5 begins. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 
God's goal for his church is to draw people to Christ. We do so by showing them what that means. Imitating God, sacrificing as Christ did. Another way of putting this is to shine as lights in the darkness. That's verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. In John's Gospel, Jesus calls himself the light of the world. In Matthew's Gospel, he calls the church the light of the world. We are to shine his light in a dark world. Live lives that act like lighthouses. Drawing people away from the destructiveness of sin and towards the light of Christ demonstrated in our lives by living lives that seek to please him. So, verse 15, as verse 15 puts it, be very careful in how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. One aspect of such a life is the way we live out our relationships. And Paul spells out what it means to relate in different relationships, how to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, as he summarises in 5.21. For wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters, in the home and at work, we are to draw things under the headship of Christ. Uh, we, do, we do that by relating in a way that shows what that means. You know, uh, which means willingly submitting to those who have headship over us, our husbands, our parents, our bosses, and being loving, gentle, fair towards those for whom we have responsibility, our wives, our children, our employees. In order to fulfil our purpose as Christ's church, all of us, in all our relationships, are to heed the words of, to slaves in 6-7, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men. And finally, as God's intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, then we need to recognise the spiritual dimension in all we do. We need to equip ourselves for the spiritual warfare that God has us involved in. As as 6.13 puts it, we need to put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, you you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. This is all about putting our faith in Christ and not ourselves. Depending on Christ's righteousness and not our own. Relying on the gospel of grace and not anything else. And using the power of God's word and his spirit that is at our call. With all this in place, the call is to pray. To call on God to fulfil his purposes through us. To bring to fruition his grand plan. So there you have it. St Andrew's Chatswood, you are at the heart of God's grand plan to bring all things under Christ. That's what God was about centuries ago in Ephesus and it's what he's about amongst you. As the opera house was built to Utzon's grand plan, so God is building you according to his grand plan, being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit, drawing attention to his grace in Christ by demonstrating it in the life of the church, drawing all things to Christ through his people, which means you're called to work together, a united people, 
to show his grace to Chatswood and beyond. It means you need to live transformed lives. Lives that, that shine like beacons for Christ. Your relationships demonstrating what Christ's headship means. It means speaking the truth in love to each other and to a world so des- that so desperately needs to hear that truth. And it means depending on God in prayer, shielded by the, the mighty power that rose Jesus from the dead, bringing glory to him by asking him to be at work. Now, maybe that doesn't seem like that much to you, but it's God's way, God's way that he wants to work in the world. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, how amazing it is that you should choose us to be your people and to to show Christ to the world and to tell Christ to the world. How incredible it is that rebels like us who have turned away from you in so many ways, who were dead in our sins, should be made alive through Christ. That, That, Lord that you choose us from before the beginning of the world, and that you draw this people here in Chatswood together as your people, that that should be the way you're going to work to make your amazing grace and love known to the world, that you would work through us to bring all things under Christ. Lord, that is just so incredible. I pray that you would help us all to really comprehend it in the depth of our being, and that that would transform us and change us so that we would be the people that you've called us to be. That this church here in Chatswood, I pray, Lord God, would increasingly be a people that so shine your light that, uh, that this community of Chatswood and the surrounding suburbs would just not be able to help but see what a great God you are. Do your work in these people, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.